Hey there, and welcome to Now a Mem. This is a new podcast series to discuss what it's like to be a man in the 21st century, and how feminist issues are relevant to the lives of men and boys. It's been set up by researchers in the Centre for Research into Violence and Abuse at Durham University in the UK. My name is Dr Stephen Burrell, and I'm a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow. The podcast is mainly hosted by myself and Sandy Ruxton, who's an Honorary Research Fellow. Hi, Sandy. Hi, Stephen. So each episode is going to be based around a conversation with an expert. That could be a practitioner, an activist, an academic, someone who's got an in-depth knowledge of the issues we're going to be looking at. And we'll be asking them about their work and the research they're doing, as well as exploring their own personal experiences of doing work related to masculinity and gender equality and how they got involved in the area. Enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Uh, Welcome to the latest episode of Now and Men. Today, we're going to be talking to Owen Thomas, and he's from the organisation Future Men, which is based in South London, and he's head of programmes on fathers there. Yeah, and so Future Men were founded back in 1988, uh, where the organisation was originally called Working With Men, uh, and they do a range of uh, different forms of work supporting men and boys and addressing stereotypes around masculinity and tackling issues ranging from emotional literacy and communication skills to mental health difficulties to youth violence and conflict management. So welcome to Now and Men, Owen. Um, As you know, this is a relatively new podcast we haven't yet got to the sort of dizzy heights of having someone on who's who's from the G7, but you're the next best thing. So I know you were invited to a meeting with the Duchess of Cambridge and Jill Biden at the G7 in Cornwall in June. So, so tell us how that came about and what your role was and whether you got any reflections on an experience like that. Gosh, um, well, thanks for having me, Sandy and Stephen. Um, it's a pleasure to be invited along to the podcast. Um, so I'd have to kind of clarify what actually being at the G7 means. It kind of means being within the vicinity of that part of Cornwall without getting past the highest security cordons. Um, basically, uh, the reason we as Future Men and I particularly was invited along was because um, a while ago, I think back in 2018, um, we run a antenatal program for dads called um, Future Dads. Um, it was originally called the Expectant Fathers Program. and pre-pandemic we used we run those out of um various hospitals across london mainly across the south london boroughs it's a one-day course a whole day on a saturday normally for men only and we deliver that in conjunction with midwives um unfortunately i mean since the pandemic that's had to go online so fortunately and unfortunately at least we've still been able to deliver some sort of intervention but before we had to lock down um, we were really lucky to um, that the duke of cambridge came and visited us and some of the men who'd completed the course um, to kind of highlight the importance of including men in antenatal care and the importance of services for men at that stage in their lives a real you know what's going to be probably the biggest event of your life um, becoming a dad um, and, and, and because we have a focus on self-care, men's well-being and mental health as well as part of the course, as well as practical parenting tips and how to support your partner or um, the mother of your child, um, he came along and gave us that focus. We then, I wouldn't say we've had an ongoing relationship, but we had a, you know, that went quite well. And during the pandemic, uh, the Duke and Duchess were conducting a series of kind of virtual visits to different provision. Um, and they reached out to us and asked what we were doing with fathers during the lockdown and we were delivering in another part of London over in Westminster uh, a programme called Strengthening Families, Strengthening Communities which is a parenting course administered by the Race Equality Foundation um, 
we have trained facilitators that run a father's only course over there and so we gathered together some dads from that course some dads who'd been on our future dads course and they sat and we had a video conference call with the duke and duchess of cambridge just basically around their experience of the pandemic how it had impacted on them and their families particularly from a father's and from a male perspective um and that was really helpful it was good for the fathers it gave them a degree of validation made them feel that people with lofty stations within our society cared about them and their situations um, whatever your political viewpoints are about the royals i suppose especially during you know that was back in the the you know the real the real throes of the first kind of lockdown when it was really new and fresh and people were feeling very isolated so for those dads who were kind of there were and there were a lot of stories around men and fathers and around you know in terms of fatherhood, men's roles, the rise in domestic violence and, and kind of like the additional pressures on women in terms of um, how domestic chores and homeschooling was being divvied up between the families. That was a narrative in the mainstream media. For a lot of the men we were working with, that didn't necessarily ring true for them. So to be able to kind of voice, you know, their, the, the realities for them of the positives of being able to maybe be more hands-on with their kids at home and and see things from their partner's perspective in terms of changes of dynamic of what your domestic duties were, it also highlighted for those men who had been playing a significant role in the caregiving of their children, kind of like a voice to say, this is nothing new for me, it's what I was doing previously, it's what I'm doing now. Um, there are negotiations that have to go on, there are challenges maybe around my work situation, around my health, um, and around my mental well-being, but generally, anyway, this is a long-winded way to say they came back to us during the pandemic. That went really well. The Duchess of Cambridge has now launched a centre for research into the early years, and they're really keen, I think, with because of the Duke's influence, to make sure that um, within that diverse voices are heard. So the voice of of, of people from ethnic minorities, from marginalised groups, mm. and particularly fathers, because they recognise if we actually want to kind of take a transformative approach to education in the early years, um, we have to include men within that, whether that be as teachers or whether that be within our role as parents and caregivers. Yeah. Um, no, so, I mean, so that's how the invite came about, basically. I mean, as you say, Owen, um, you know, irrespective of the politics, I think it, it sounds good that they're paying attention to the issues that, that you're interested in. So, you know, that sounds mm -hmm. like a, a good connection to have. I mean, I'm sure we'll be asking you a bit more uh, during our conversation about the work of, of future men. But yeah. before we do that, it'd be quite interesting to know a bit about your own biography. And we've been asking anyone who comes on the podcast a little bit about how they got to do what they do. Now, mm. I think I'm right, you're from South London? Is that I right? am. Yeah. I am indeed South London so, born and bred. Right. Which, which part? I'm from Brixton originally. Uh -huh. Brixton boy. So yeah. in this so, year of many anniversaries, yeah, it's, it's poignant, yeah. Yeah, well, you'd be interested to know I lived in Brixton myself from about 1985 oh. to 95, something like that. So uh, we probably had very uh, different experiences, which might be interesting to to talk about. But uh, uh, maybe I could ask you about your experiences of growing up in Brixton. Um, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm going to be careful not to get your age wrong, but I imagine you were sort of 80s, 90s. Yes, indeed. I mean, well, that's, yeah, I was there in the 80s and 90s. Um, I was born in the 70s, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid-40s now. So um, it was a long time ago, you know, I, I, I have vivid memories of all of the events that we've been commemorating this year of, of the uprising in 81. And then subsequently in 85, I was a small boy then and was sent away after day one by 
by my dad with my mum and my sister to visit um, my grandparents who lived in the country. I'm, a, I'm of mixed heritage, so my dad's uh, black Caribbean and my mum's white British, but we grew up in Brixton um, and was raised, you know, I was born, in, as I said, in the 70s and was raised there in, in, a, in, a, in a nice home on a nice road, which I couldn't afford to live on now with all of the changes and gentrifications yeah. that's happened well, in Brixton. Yeah. Um, but we were probably in the market at the same time, me maybe in a stroller. Uh, no, no, 85 <laughs> you said you came. 85 I was already walking to myself to school probably, maybe. But, but, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, I am a little bit older than you, I'll, I'll confess that. But uh, <laughs> but I do remember all the issues that you mentioned just now about the gentrification of the area, people moving back to the Caribbean, selling their houses for quite a lot of money, to probably to people yeah. like me. You know, but also all the sort of public sector stuff about cuts to community centres, to libraries, Absolutely. to playgrounds. Yeah. And as I think you're hinting at, you know, real concern about the experience of the black community, you know, yeah. uh, deaths in police custody, deaths in the community as well. So there was, yeah. it was quite a sort of charged place to live, wasn't it, at that time? I mean, it was in many ways, but I think we have to remember there's always a juxtaposition to that, that whilst you know in the face of hardship and adversity you know it's the mother of kind of um invention and the mother of kind of as it's aspiration and inspiration to do better so you know a lot of whilst we face a lot of challenges that god you know you know thankfully whether you believe in god or not that thankfully we've moved past as a society in terms of the overt racism and the overt inequality that occurred at those times however you know your enemy so to speak was a lot more uh, visible, whether that be Maggie Thatcher or whether that be a racist policeman overtly calling names in the street or groups of young white males still walking around and you know my mum will tell me before I remember that she was accosted in the street for have, being a white woman with, with, with children who were not the same colour as her in her buggy you know and clearly having a black man as a partner or as a husband and, and, and consorting with someone from another race you know they spat at her she told me I don't remember that thankfully but um, you know I remember open racism I remember it occurring to me and to people around me and I remember that my father and our friends and our cohort were socially active and community active people and it wasn't unusual you know I think a lot more of your average working person had more of a stake because of the polarization of society back then in protest in union whether that be around the education system whether that be around race and community justice whether that been around women's issues um, a lot of those issues conflated. I, I got, take, I got taken on a lot of marches in the 80s, whether that be to save the ILEA or to save the GLC or a local swimming pool. Yeah. Um, we, were, we were probably on the same marches. We were um, probably on the same marches you know, in different because, parts. You know, we were out pretty much every weekend, I think. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, so whilst there were a lot of problems, there was also a sense, especially from my memories as a child, of a really strong sense of community, a really strong sense of identity that was instilled within me, of pride in who we are and where we lived, and of not wanting to feel um, kind of sec second-class citizens because we were from an area that, especially after 81, had a really bad reputation in the mainstream media and the press. Um, but actually kind of having that, you know, delivered to me through the lens of my parents who were very different people, um, as men and women, as a white British person, as someone who come as a child from the Caribbean, but both kind of really interested in caring. My mum worked in early years. Um, she came down to London from the countryside and was trained as an early years nursery practitioner back in those days and was really interested in child development and child education. Clearly she was a person who was open to cultural diversity because she married my dad. And my dad was a person who was fairly active in the community um, 
both in terms of kind of supporting the black community and self-determination, but also in terms of just community development full stop in terms of housing issues and trying to bring up what was a very working class or, you know, even, you know, there's a lot of unemployment then as well, just trying to have opportunities for the youth in the local area as well. So that was the lens that brought me up. I went to a state school in the local area in what was the barrier block, Summer Layton, notorious estate now, um, Moreland's estate. Um, but it was a great place to be, you know. My childhood was, was I, I remember it really, really fondly. Whilst I remember those moments in 81 and 85 and things that happened, you know, it was really positive. I, I lived with my Caribbean grandmother in our home that we lived in downstairs. When they bought that in the 50s and 60s, when they arrived, it was kind of like one of those homes which was like a stopping point. So when other people came along, they stayed there with my family for a, had a room within the house for a few months until they got settled and set up by themselves and would move out. So there was always a lot of people in the community who knew my gran and my family coming around, you know, Sister Gladys, Mrs. Thomas, all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, it was a really rich childhood for me and being a person of mixed heritage as well, gave me a unique position to understand and empathise with the black experience, being a person who would be considered black in terms of political terminology, even I'm a mixed race person, um, but also seeing the world from the position that actually I have got another viewpoint. I have got family who aren't from that background. I have the opportunity to go and visit grandparents who live in Norfolk occasionally on holidays and it gave me a different, a different kind of um, oversight of the situation and a unique position. Um, which I suppose as I grew and developed didn't stop me being subject to some of the negative experiences that happen as you enter adolescence. Some of the experiences that many of the young men that we support now are going through um, with maybe less resource, both in terms of their familial networks and in terms of the support in the society that's available to them than I had. So I recognised the richness and the benefits I had and the challenges that young men now face. And what do you um, what do you remember kind of learning as you were growing up about about gender and being a boy, being a man? Uh, you know, and was, do you think there was anything in particular kind of during that time which might have drawn you towards the work that you're doing now? I mean, I think just the sense of um, you know understanding yourself, the sense of identity and self awareness, and the fact that I'm a male is part of that. You know, I think you know there is an intersectionality between race gender, sex, um, all of these kind of issues. And I think, um, you know, I had very mixed influences growing up. You know, I, I, I'm from the Caribbean in terms of my, my, my lineage from my dad's side. And so a lot of the music and some of the messages, you know, they're quite conservative of a small C. My grandmother was quite religious in some ways, you know. So, you know, their outlook on the world in some ways was more British than the British. You know, they'd come with their colonial education in the 50s with ideas on how Britain was that were probably from a few decades before um, and kind of they came and held on to those belief systems but they were also very proud they believed in hard work I suppose they were slightly respectful of of, of class without, but then wanted to be disruptive as well because of their experiences my grandfather who unfortunately passed away my Jamaican grandfather who passed away before I was born was a qualified engineer and had worked in New York before they decided to come and settle in Britain but when he came here he couldn't get any work in the field he was qualified in so I had to settle for lesser jobs and stuff so those challenges and those inequalities start to shift the older generation's perception away from just wanting to conform to actually well no this isn't fair and then I suppose my dad's experience to someone who came here as a very small child but was educated here um, and grew up here then informed this idea of uh, uh, resistance or activism to try and bring about social change, to bring about equality and bring about a fairer society. Um, and as I said, as I mentioned earlier, there was this kind of like co co 
coalescence between different causes of minorities at the time, whether that be, you know, union issues attached to miners losing their jobs and, and, and the printers in Wapping losing their jobs, um, alongside people working for the local authority who are trying to, as you mentioned, kind of um, uh, agitate for a fairer allocation of resources locally to different parts of the community. I was very aware of all of that from a very young age. So that then shapes your idea of what's fair and what's not fair mm-hmm. um, in terms of your familial role. But as you guys maybe had yourselves, as an adolescent, as you get to that stage in your life, you're sometimes wearing several hats. You know, you're, you're, you're wearing a hat of responsibility, what you know you should do and what society and your parents expect for you. Then you've got your social grouping and your peer groups and your friends. And growing up where I grew up, a lot of the people I knew for a long time when we were quite small had very different home life experiences than me, had very different resources and very different support networks around them. So found themselves falling into different lifestyles Mm. um, uh, than than I did. So therefore I was tempted and I got involved with stuff that wasn't always good or Mm. or sweetness and light or on the positive side of reaching out for equality for all. Mm. Some of it might have been discriminatory, some of it might have been very selfish. and very adolescent, actually. But it was challenging, you know, my views on being a man and masculinity were informed by both of those things. What I knew to be kind of what my elders told me was the right way to be, the moral messages I was getting from the religious people around me in my life about fairness and equality, um, but also some of the more negative influences that said like, these, this is how a man should be. Sometimes there is an uber macho element of parts of Caribbean culture that's grounded in, I said, that old colonial religious mindset that is very much around um, the commandments and heterosexual and marriage is right and all that kind of stuff. Some of the music at the time, as we all know, there were artists that were making music that was unacceptable, that had them, that was, you know, that was homophobic, that had them banned from coming into the country to perform, you know, and when you're at that age, you're still struggling, I suppose, to find your sense of self and who I am you're maybe not brave enough to say, well, actually, that doesn't bother me over there. So you conform a little bit with your peer groups, possibly. Mm. Um, And on the other hand, sometimes, you know, you're still trying to kind of... um, There's a risk to being an outlier in terms of your views on what it is to be Mm. a man at that stage, Mm. which is, for me, more much more pronounced now for the young men we work with, Mm. that if you don't fit into their views of what it is to be a boy or a young man from a certain community or a certain background... Mm. then you're, you're literally your, your physical well-being is at risk mm. I was much more able within my peer group who was very mixed some of them were bad and some of them were good to kind of be like well I know you lot are going to go out on this, this endeavour this evening but you know what I'm going to sit here and wait for you so when you're finished come back and let me know where it goes mm. and I'd accept that mm. you know nowadays it's either you're with us or you're against us you know so I was always seen as a bit of a, you know, they'd nickname me things like professor and stuff like that even before, <laughs> just because I had a different, you know, more thoughtful viewpoint on the world, mm. you know, but it was appreciated then. Guys used to mm. want to come and talk and explore stuff. I think that's been shut down for young men, not just from my community, but from a lot of communities now. Mm. The, the, the lanes that you can live in seem to be much more clearly defined now. And I think the access to technology and social media and interest generated content all the algorithms that exist mean that you don't you're not exposed to a so diverse a world view you know even though we only had three channels then four channels when i was growing up because that's all you had yeah. if you were bored you had to watch one of them yeah. now you've got so much content available that you can only end up watching stuff that mm. interests you and if your interests at 14 are misogynistic rap music that's all you'll ever see and mm. you could live for 20 years 14 15 years without ever seeing another viewpoint Mm. So, you know, my generation, whilst not, you know, many men are still 
locked into very traditional views of being a man from my generation, there was more opportunity to see mm. varied things. Yeah, that's really interesting. Perhaps we can come back to that a bit more later. But um, but you mentioned as well about about the fact that you're a, you're a father, and I was just wondering yeah. if you could perhaps say a little bit about that. Like, how do you how do you you know balance that with your with your work, especially during the the pandemic, for example? Uh, you know, how easy would you say it is to kind of practice what you what you preach in that regard? <laughs> I mean, it's really challenging. I'll be honest, it's really challenging. I mean, I recognise compared to the people we've been supporting through this, our service users that I'm particularly lucky but it doesn't mean it's been easy you know I've got you know as a result of what we we're just talking about you know part of my teenage and adolescent journey meant that I was a dad at 18 going on 19 with my first daughter who's now you know a grown woman teaching secondary school maths herself in South London um, so um, I'm really proud of her and she was defining you know becoming a dad for the first time was was defining for my life and actually in many ways saved me or, or made me realize that I'd start choices about what I wanted to be do I want to keep dallying and messing about here with peer groups and all of this kind of stuff and doing stuff which seems exciting and important or do I take the messages that have already been instilled in me by my family and the people who love me and care about me and, and in society and say right Here's a little bit of a little bit of me outside of me that I should um, that I need to nurture and care for because I can't be fatalistic anymore. I actually have to be responsible because mm. she needs me, you know. So that's defined me, and that's was what that's what got me into this role in the first place. Um, the opportunity to work with young dads because I was one myself, and I've been here at working with men slash future men since 2005. So it's mm. not been a short journey within this organisation. Mm. Um, but relating it to this pandemic, I've now got two younger girls, a nine-year-old and a two-year-old. So um, we've had to do all of the, you know, all the homeschooling, all of the kind of like, well, my two-year-old, you know, she literally just turned one just before the pandemic hit. So I remember we just, I mean, I think I had COVID at that stage. Oh, <laughs> just before the lockdown, I was really unwell. Oh, no. She, we, you know, uh, her mum's from a Catholic background tradition, so we had a... We had a ceremony at one of their churches and we had a little event for the family at a restaurant. Um, and I'd just recovered from this month of having a really bad cough and fever, went and did this event. And then a month, like a few weeks later, it was that coincided with her first birthday. And a few weeks later, we all entered this first lockdown. Yeah. So raising her through this lockdown has been really different than raising my other two girls who obviously had child minders and went to nursery. And we, both her mum and I, after maternity leave and whatever we're working full time so that's changed our dynamic all of this stuff has um shaped you know and helped me help me really empathize with the guys who have got far less kind of um access to resource than i have and far less opportunity and far less support than i have who have been kind of managing and going through this process you know and not just men and fathers but women as well mothers you know young girls who are living in homes without the influence of their fathers or their mothers who have got a lack of support through all of the shutdown of services you know schools yeah. are such a play such an important role of the lives of marginalised and disenfranchised kids in terms of a safe space for them to be mm. you know with the pastoral care as well as the interest in their education the chance to learn and socialise in a safe space you know we talk a lot about contextual safeguarding in this day and age and I think for the most vulnerable kids in our societies and for some of those that we work with and support it's been really worrying and challenging trying mm. to stay in touch with them and to try and keep a handle on them and keep them informed 
mm. whilst the first lockdown, especially when schools were locked down for all those months in the first instance. Let's, let's talk a bit more about um, Future Men. Um, I mean, I wondered why the organisations got that name, really, you yeah. know, and uh, tell us a bit about the purpose of the organisation and why you changed from being working with men. Yeah, um, well, I, I, I've been here through that transformation and I think very much that's what we were. We worked with men, you know, our previous CEO and one of the founders is a chap called Trevor Lloyd, who's, you know, was a great inspiration to me when I first joined this organisation and was really, you know, nosy stuff when it comes to men and masculinity um, and fatherhood especially. Um, and, you know, he was very much, you know, made the point to me and I used to drum it into people and I used to go out, no, we're not working for men, we're not working at men, we're working with men. We do what we say. We, we're here to journey alongside men. We understand that men, you know, some men need support and help. They won't ask for it typically, especially if it's around their own well-being and benefit. Sometimes they come to you in crisis, but even then, often men won't. What we recognise that the kind of atmosphere for funding for charities like ours, small to medium-sized charities that are doing specialist work, um, was changing. You know, when I first joined in the mid-2000s under a new Labour government, there were specific pots of money allocated to teenage pregnancy, for example. You know, we had a 10-year strategy. It was recognised that Britain had the highest TP rates in Western Europe, and they wanted to address that. Alongside things like Sure Start Plus and all of the children's centres that were invested with at the time, they recognised that, well, if we want to provide an egalitarian, equal society, we need to include men in the caregiving parenting space rather than reinforce the idea that that's women's work. We need to support fathers to be more hands-on, um, whether they want to or not, and, and, and model the idea that, that hands-on parenting, not just financial provider role, is something that men can do and we recognise that and support that through services. That all changed with the financial crash in 2008-9 and the subsequent coalition and conservative governments and a reduction in local authority budgets. Um, we've seen the youth services deteriorate and diminish uh, everywhere up and down the country in a statutory, you know, from a statutory basis. I used to work for a local authority youth. That's how I got into some of my first work was doing local authority youth and play work. Um, and after school work, um, that's gone now. You know, that, that, that pastoral element of care within communities and within societies, which is essential for kids, especially kids from marginalised communities or deprived financially communities, has gone. Um, so that's what got me into the mindset of doing what we're doing. And that change indicated to us at the time that we were no longer going to be able to be funded like this. We wouldn't survive. We'd either be swallowed up by a larger charity or we'd fold like a lot of our colleagues who work in this sector have over the last few years. So... There was a recognition we needed to position ourselves to be more aspirational. We needed to kind of win more hearts and minds from a broader section of society around the issues that we were trying to tackle. You know, future men, as working with men did, wants to provide a better society for all by working specifically with boys and men, marginalised boys and men, at, trans at kind of um, key moments in their lives, mm -hmm. transitional moments in their lives, i.e., you know, adolescence, moving from primary to secondary school. Um, leaving school and moving into the world of work or further education, beginning relationships with, in a romantic sense, becoming a parent, all of these kind of transitional moments where men are more open and susceptible, and boys as well, to accepting help or seeking help or having a conversation about the change that's going on in their lives. So we had to position, we had to kind of change and rebrand ourselves to make our aspirational approach to work be reflected in the name. So you're suggesting, in a way, a move away from 
a more sort of traditional form of masculinity. But but um, what kind of char- characteristics are you hoping to instill in boys and men for the future? Yeah, I mean, well, we've got seven that we that we um, kind of um, allude to on our website that we talk about, um, and you've got me at a. You've got me at a loss here because I don't want you to know them all off the top of my head. Uh, inclusivity, empathy, uh, non-violence. Um, uh, we shouldn't have mentioned seven. Uh. Curiosity. If you hadn't mentioned seven, you could have got away with no, it. No, I'm nearly there. Re- reflectiveness and resilience, right? So whilst those seven characteristics aren't exclusive to masculinity or men or boys, what we'd found is that you know, if we sat down and kind of um, thought about this and we had away days with all of our practitioners and staff and operational staff and looked at what were the traits or qualities we find that we've, we most regularly discuss with our boys and young men, what are the tools that they need to help them cope with the challenges that life is throwing them at the moment? Those are the ones that we came across. And I think, you know, um, you know in terms of non-violence, we know that male violence... Um, is a problem in our society, you know, not just through the lens of domestic violence and the violence that men do to women, which is terrible, and we want to see a change to that, but also, you know, you know, the biggest victims of male violence are other men, unfortunately. We are horrible to each other. We are not nice. We have learned over many, many years that one of the ways, one of the major ways we solve our problems is through violence, through fighting, through asserting dominance. So if we can kind of promote the idea that you can solve your problems and you can get through life without resorting to violence then, hey, we're all better off. The, the, the chap himself and all of the people that he may subsequently interact with thereafter is going to have a happier life. You know, um, the, the aim of all of these characteristics, because it's not just those seven that we focus on, you know, there are many other characteristics and traits within a person that you might want to promote, especially if after doing some initial work and engagement work and assessment work, you find that they are deficient in one particular area that they need to be better in, then you would focus on that. But the overall aim of looking at any of these traits or characteristics is trying to bring about a critical thinker, someone who's questioning and doesn't just accept um, unswervingly whatever's been told to them by whatever authority figure may appear in their life, whether that be their parents, their peers, the government, or some conspiracy site on YouTube, you know, we're saying to you, be more scientific in your approach to life. Be more questioning, be more curious, um, whilst at the same time realising that life is going to throw you up a number of challenges. Right. How are you going to cope with that? You know, One of the ways you cope in life is being open as a man to the idea that you should ask for and accept help. How do you find the young men that you work with respond to your, your challenge in a way? I mean, I, I guess there are different kinds of reaction, but you know um are they open to new models of masculinity or yeah and i think as well the trick is not to try and present too radical a model of masculinity at first sure so you know you have to go on a journey with people there's no point in me or any of my colleagues jumping in and saying right you're not the right kind of man you need to change everything about you to fit in you know, a lot of the young men and men we work with are being told that all of the time by society anyway. So they've given up on caring what anyone thinks. All of our interventions are based upon what you might call old-fashioned community engagement principles, which are about making, building, trusting, professional relationships with people who know that you care about them and their situation and that you're willing to try and help them move from where they are, point A, to another point, point B, which is going to be somewhere that 
both they and we think would be better for them. You know, and I think it's a slow process. First, you have to build a relationship. First of all, that might start by actually tackling some of the practical challenges they have in their life around access to finance or housing, or they might have some statutory service like the police or social services involved in their life, and they've got no one to advocate for them or support them or explain in plain English what's going on. You know, there's a lot of stuff happening around them and to them, and they don't really get it. So they have a typically male response, which is, I don't care, I'm not bothered, I'm going to do what I want anyway. You know, so I think when you actually come along and say, look, I've, you know, you've either self-selected or I've done outreach and I've come across you, what issues matter to you? What's going on in your life that you feel passionate about? You know, oh, I've got a problem with the child, my mother's, you know, my, my son's mother, or I've got a problem with the school they treat me a certain way or I'm a dad and no one gives me my props no one thinks I should be listened to or I'm a teenage boy and I want to be rich and I want to be famous and I want a fast car but I'm from Peckham I've not done well at school it doesn't interest me my teachers don't like me you know what do I do so I think you if they then believe that whoever's working with them what are a member of staff on the ground at that moment cares about their situation understands where they're coming from and I just want to make the point that could be a male member of staff or a female member of staff we have some great women that work for us here at Future Men and previously at Working With Men who've got who've been really effective at engaging with boys and men around their issues whether that be fatherhood or adolescence or educational attainment you know they've been really great at doing that work so it's not male on male work this is about empathy to the issues that those guys the service user cohort present and being able to show them that you care and are willing to work with them to move them forward generally once people accept that you care they are much more willing to accept your ideas to even not even just the idea of debating with you ideas and issues. Well, actually, that that does connect to um, the previous episode of our of our podcast. Um, we talked to Mike Ward, who's done uh, research in South Wales uh, with young men mm. there, and and he, you know he argues that we do need to think you know about locality and how like place influences things like masculinity. Absolutely. So so I mean I, I suppose yeah we were just wondering. Obviously, your work is very much based in in London. Um, mm. So yeah, what are, what are some of the things that the young men you work with you know are telling you? about the things that they're experiencing uh, you know what sense do you get about how they're trying to perform masculinity yeah. and, and how do they see their futures I suppose the, the issues of gentrification the issues of the widening gap of wealth between communities and the lack of interaction that, that, that thing I was referencing earlier on when I was talking about growing up in Brixton but having the opportunity to mix with a broad range of people and see a broad range of issues because of the lack of choice you know these are things I were exposed to that the generation now are not having the opportunity to be exposed to. They are in their lane with their local community and are stuck there. You know, as a boy from Brixton, we're at the end of the Victoria Line, if anyone knows London, which is one of the more modern underground lines. So literally, from when I was old enough, I could get on a tube and go anywhere in London I wanted to go and visit friends or party or go shopping. And I was exposed, you know, I was able to travel around my city and really take it in and experience it. I was safe enough to do so as well at that time. I wasn't worried that if I went to another area, I was going to immediately be set upon by a group of local boys saying, where are you and who are you from? Mm -hmm. Whereas the boys I'm working with now in some of the areas we've got in London, here, here I am sitting in Southwark right now, we're in the north of the borough. Boys from this part of the borough won't go down to Peckham at the south of the borough, you know, because even if they haven't got any particular argument, just because they will know I'm not from there and, and it might be a problem. You know, these mm -hmm. are the things that have changed. So issues of place 
are really relevant. Then when you start working with them and trying to do aspirational work, this is why you should stay in school. This is why you should go for these exams. You know, this is why you should do further education and not settle for hustling on the street and making a pittance, selling a bit of weed or whatever. Because in five or 10 years from now, these are opportunities. This is what it costs to rent a flat. This is the likelihood of you getting on the local housing register, even though you've lived in this borough your whole life. They're minimal for single males. Even if you, you have a girlfriend and she gets pregnant, you're not going to get a flat anywhere near here, near your mum from the council. So this is what private renting looks like. Mm. So place in London is really volatile at the moment. You know, mm. you know these communities are changing in front of the eyes of the young people we're working with and they do feel very excluded from their local areas and, and a future in that local area. So mm. it's a real challenge for us alongside the, the ongoing issues of identity, race, sexuality, and all that that we're trying to challenge. You know, this generation in some ways are really open actually because of the internet. There are plus sides to it. Mm -hmm. You know, they're really open to things that my generation weren't. Mm -hmm. So in terms of people's sexuality or identity, in some ways, even though these boys, some of these boys might be really kind of criminal and uber macho in some of their viewpoints, even some of their attitudes towards women, they don't actually even got a problem with someone being gay that they grew up and went to school with. I don't actually mind, that's his business. I don't care about that. Whereas 30 years ago when I was that age oh it was taboo you mm. know people like that had to hide their true selves from people so there's mm. been some positive shifts in some ways but there have been some real negative shifts in other ways yeah and, and um, the one thing uh, we wanted to ask as well kind of um, in connection to some of the things you were saying there was um, on, on the Future Men website it says that you kind of st the organisation stands in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter campaign which you mm. mentioned earlier and, and yeah we were just um, interested in that really like you know what what does that movement kind of mean to, to you to the organisation and, and does is it something which you know, a lot of the young men that you work with kind of relate to and, and has it impacted them, would you say? So in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement, you've got a lot of young people who are very aware because of their own personal experiences in life of racism, of this feeling of injustice or unfairness. But it's through the lens of the 21st century, you know. So it's much more microaggressions, systemic um, inequality, rather than I've had people come up to me in the street and call me, the N-word, for example, which is something that I remember vividly being a child and fighting with boys in my school. You know, I can't imagine boys we work with in schools in the, in the London boroughs saying they've had that kind of issue necessarily, um, but they feel racism in different ways mm. in society. So their response to it, again, is shaped differently. And I think us, our statement saying we stand in, in solidarity with the movement is one, again, that I alluded to earlier on. Those of us who are aware of these horrible issues both in America and here in Britain in itself, um, where this year uh, the police officer that was involved in the death of Dalian Atkinson was the first police officer ever convicted of a, a wrongful death or manslaughter in relation to a custody proceeding. You know, yeah. we know that this is a long struggle. There is nothing unfortunately new in what happened to um, George Floyd. Mm -hmm. um, but as I said, the welcome renewed focus of a wider audience for people who maybe weren't concerned on a day-to-day -day basis about um, how the police and how the justice system dealt with people of, of, of from minority backgrounds um, really affects a lot of our cohort, affects a lot of our staff as well, a lot of our staff from ethnic minority backgrounds and have grown up battling against those issues and those challenges themselves. So making a statement kind of highlighting that we support that and we acknowledge that movement and that there is a change coming and we want people to build on that. However, it kind of also doesn't necessarily it doesn't say that we're affiliated with the Black Lives Matter 
program itself as a political movement because again like many other political movements you know they will have differences of opinion they'll have changes in leadership they'll have different ways that they express their protest and their resistance that are different to the way future men would obviously um, we're all free individuals outside of our work as well and have our own views politically and personally about why the world is the way it is and what we can do about it um, generally though most of us are here working at this organization because we believe that being part of the system and using the mechanisms of state that are available to us, including legal protest and resistance and all the rest of it, should be explored. And young people should know that they can do that as well. They don't just have to yeah. sit back and accept the status quo. There is a power in collectivism and, and in collective action yeah. that has been lost somewhat over the mm. last 20 or 30 years. So, um, mm. you know, we mustn't forget that. And we must also remember, as I said, the intersectionality and the solidarity that this issue around racial justice also bleeds over into issues of uh, uh, sexual equality and mm. gender equality, you yeah. know, and how black women may be finding it harder to, to, to progress as white women through, as mm. gender issues have become more, you know, the health inequalities of, of birth outcomes for black women yeah. here in Britain were yeah. highlighted during the pandemic, you know, mm. how much more likely black women are to suffer a stillbirth and have mm. other health problems during pregnancy. So that focuses very welcome and also it, it, it shines a factual spotlight on stuff that maybe wasn't always wasn't always you know at the at the forefront and has forced big organizations like the NHS yeah. to kind of change some of their policies and their practices to make things fairer you know equality isn't everyone having the same thing equality is everyone having the same outcome at the end you know so I think if we've got different routes to get into the same outcome that's what we need and I mm. think some men and boys need something different um, to get where they need to get to. The, the last thing I wanted to ask, I hope, uh, yeah, if, obviously, if Sandy wants to say anything, feel free. Um, I was obviously, I can imagine that your organisation, the people you work with, have been impacted hugely by the pandemic. Um, yeah. And so, I suppose one thing uh, I was wondering I was, like, you know, in this kind of pivotal moment of social upheaval, like, how do you see uh, the future for the men and boys that you work with? You know, what do you think are some of the opportunities, some of the some of the kind of dangers that that yeah. they're facing uh, at, at this moment in time yeah I, ha I have to really try especially when I'm at work and being paid to be optimistic <laughs> you know I have yeah. to really really try and say look whilst I you know can see from my many years experience all of the potential risks that lie ahead from for, 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 for our society let alone our cohorts of boys we work with immediately the economic downturn, the lack of investment in services socially, the lack of opportunities for work. Because we've got to remember, you know, this pandemic isn't, hasn't come in isolation. It's come just after a Brexit vote where we as a country decided to change our whole political outlook and our supply chain and all that kind of stuff, our access to labour, which in some ways may bring about an opportunity over the long term if we invest in training and development for young men from this country. Um, however... I'm a bit reticent about where, how long that will take to materialise, you know. So, so I think, you know, in 10 or 20 years, maybe, depending <laughs> if we stick with this decision, we might do better at training up young men who are leaving school in vocationary, vocational tasks and roles. And there may be a clearer pathway into work from guys and boys and young men from marginalised community to find work on the massive construction projects they see going up in the boroughs around them, which they have very little chance of working on. You know, we... I'm hoping that we can do more of that kind of work and that is the way it goes. However, the risks are that, you know, 
the society continues down this kind of polarised path, which is evident here in Britain and in America and around the world, where you've kind of got quite populist, you know, public discourse around you're either with us, you're against us, you're in this camp or you're in that camp, and try and find some middle ground, basically, that we can all actually admit that you can have a viewpoint and I can have a viewpoint, but we can have a discussion and a debate about it and leave it fairly amicably agreeing to disagree, but agreeing that there is a problem and something needs to be done. Where can we find common ground? I'm hopeful, you know, as much as we work with young people in challenge or in dif who are in difficult times, there are still lots and lots of young people who are really inspirational. They're making use of the technology that's available to them in the 21st century to push for positive change, to organise, to educate, to create opportunities for themselves in the business world, um, you know, to utilise, you know, their ingenuity and their creativeness to kind of change things for the better and to be more inclusive and to educate our generation about kind of mistakes we made and how we could do things better. So I am hopeful. I have to be. I've got kids who are growing up and, I, and I've got to say to them the world's going to be a nice place to live in when, you, you know, you have to pay for stuff in a few <laughs> years' time. Um, but, you know, and, and for the one I've got who's grown up already, you know, who's an adult, to be fair, who... I was trying to be hopeful in the in the 90s and the early 2000s with and who is now plough plowing plow her furrow helping educate the next generation of boys and young women in this country as well something that you know I take some credit for in terms of I was there but actually she's a self-defined person you know she she's chosen her pathway I might have pushed her she's got a math speciality so I might have said to her counter to all of my personal social beliefs go and work in finance for a few years and, and make yourself financially comfortable and she's gone no dad I want to work in education so in some ways people might say to me well that's a success because you've instilled in her your, your value system you know and I think yeah but I want her to be comfortable I don't want her to be struggling and all the rest of it but hey ho what makes us happy you yeah. know is it being able to afford a mortgage on a property that you know and, and a flat screen TV or is it the job satisfaction you get from seeing the, the you know your influence on others around you and I guess it's the latter really otherwise I wouldn't still be here doing the work that I do that's fantastic thank you so much Owen um, I didn't have any other questions unless uh, you wanted to say anything Sandy no I don't thanks so much and uh, thanks yeah. for the great work you're doing Owen yeah. and uh, one day I'm going to come and have a drink with you in Brixton as well and we can chat a bit more about those times yeah please please do thank you gentlemen Wow, that was great, wasn't it, Sandy? What did you think about what Owen had to say? Yes, Stephen, that was so interesting. Uh, um, of course, you know, discovering that we had a common link living in Brixton in the 1980s, 1990s uh, was fascinating for me because in some ways it sounded as if our paths crossed over in terms of some of the politics. But in other ways, you know, him living as a, a young mixed race guy is very different from my experience as a privileged white guy. So, um, I, I found that uh, uh, fascinating. And uh, as we said, I'd quite like to talk to him more about that. But uh, um, also, I think the notion of locality and the relationship with masculinity, he brought out again, as mm. Mike Ward did in the previous podcast, how important mm. that is, mm. you know, how, how it shapes how masculinity plays out, how young men see themselves, how they see their lives. Um, and, you know, he he gave us the impression that that it was in some ways, much more sort of restricted and policed for young men today. When he mentioned mm. the example of some areas of, of south of the borough where young men wouldn't go to, 
um, mm. because they weren't from that area and so on, and, and how risky that might be for them. I and mean, that wasn't the case when uh, when he was growing up, he, he mm. said. So, so that was interesting. And also he brought out loads of issues around um, poverty, inequality, austerity as well, particularly mm. in relation to housing and the difficulties mm. of getting council housing or you know the insecurity of the the private rented sector and mm. uh, you know all these things make it so difficult for for young men young black men in particular yeah absolutely and i suppose that is again thinking about locality that is so- something which is of course a huge issue across the uk but especially in london is yeah that the huge uh, cost of housing and the and as he referred to that the extreme inequalities in wealth that you've got some people who are extremely wealthy in london but a lot of poverty as well and and i, I think i really uh, liked his point about how um you know, prevention, investing in prevention, investing in the kind of work that organizations like Future Men do, uh, you know, they can achieve real change in people's lives, which prevent and address a whole range of issues connected to masculinity and other social inequalities. But so much of that work has been uh, damaged and uh, or even completely removed because of, you know, austerity policies that we've seen in, in the UK over the last decade or so. So uh, I think there's a real need there for, for policy change and for more investment in this kind of work in the, in the future, really. And in the end, he was he was trying to be very optimistic about the future, yeah. but mm. recognised, you know, the difficulties that we're all facing, really, in terms of uh, mm. cuts and austerity. Yeah, which is obviously, especially in the unique context of the kind of pandemic and the, the crisis around that. Yeah. Uh, but for now, that's, uh, that's it. So thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Thanks. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Now and Men. Any references we mentioned will all be in the show notes. You're welcome to email us at nowandmen at gmail.com if you'd like to ask us questions or suggest a guest. And we're really keen that the podcast should be listened to by as many people as possible to encourage more men to think about issues of masculinity and gender equality. So please do follow Now and Men so the latest episode drops in your podcast feed as soon as it's released. You can also leave a review and share it among your friends and colleagues and look out for our next episode coming soon. So you take care, take care of each other, and speak to you again soon.